From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 197 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic tonight. Great. Well, you know, back in episode 112, way back then, Dave Bossert and Alan Coates joined us to talk about the start of their Indiegogo campaign for their book, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, The Making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and Beyond. And we are delighted to welcome them back now that the campaign has been a success and the book is soon to be published. So Dave began his career at the Walt Disney Studio as an in-betweener in the effects department on The Black Cauldron, and moved up to an effects animator on The Great Mouse Detective, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Oliver and Company, Tummy Trouble, The Little Mermaid, Roller Coaster Rabbit, and Rescuers Down Under. He then became a supervising effects animator on Beauty and the Beast and continued doing effects animation on Aladdin, The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Runaway Brain, with additional effects supervision on The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules, before being promoted to visual effects supervisor on Fantasia 2000. He then began working on special projects for the theme parks and was part of the creative team for World of Color and the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train and other attractions at Disney theme parks around the world. David has authored many books, including Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Ken Weber, Mid-Century Furniture Designs for the Disney Studios, Dolly and Destino, animator Eric Goldberg, and Roy E. Disney. Alan Coates followed in his father's footsteps, becoming an Imagineer, and worked with his father on designing many of the original Epcot Center pavilions. His mother, Evelyn, met Claude when she was the department of the ink and paint department. Um, I think she was like, the was she the department head or something, I believe? Advisor of the inking corridor yeah. during the uh, production of, uh, of Snow White. Snow White, yeah. Alan met Walton Roy Disney, knew all of the nine old men, and even has his baby photos that were taken by Imagineer Yale Gracie. Alan started his career with Disney in ride operations at Disneyland before moving into Imagineering at WED Enterprises and show installation at Walt Disney World. He also worked in story and production at the Walt Disney Studio. So quite a career for both of our guests today. Dave and Alan, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Wow, that was some introduction, Michael, I have to say. Do we have time for a show now? <laughs> I know. Well, I just want everybody to be dazzled, you know, by you. <laughs> so, you know, it must... <laughs> You're welcome. You know, it must have been quite a journey for you since you joined us back in episode 112, 
to talk about the launch of the Indiegogo campaign for Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, the making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and beyond. So for our listeners who supported the campaign or who will be purchasing the book after listening to this episode, would you tell us what's happened since we last spoke to get this book to become a reality? Well, uh, the book had to be written. And we wanted to make sure there was an audience out there uh, for the book. And that's why we did the Indiegogo campaign. What we said was, you know, pre-order the book now. And in two years, you're going to get the copy. And uh, and fortunately, there was a lot of people out there who knew who Claude Coates was and who said, yes, like, I can't believe, you know, uh, another publisher wasn't going to do this book. You know, and so they said, yes, we're going to pre-order the book. And by the way, the people that pre-ordered the book at the basic level of $40, they're getting a $65 book for that $40 contribution. You know, the pre-order, essentially, the pre-order of the book, they're getting a $65 book. So they're all getting a deal. They sure are. And I have seen a, a proof of the book, and it is spectacular. And Alan, what a tribute to your father that people were willing to invest in this book sight unseen uh, just because of your your father's reputation. Yes, it meant a lot to me that that the the support was there. And I knew it was. And with uh, the help of Dave, uh, who wrote just an incredible volume about Uh, it's not just about my father. It's about the art of creativity, about working with Walt, uh, becoming an Imagineer and creating a great American iconic institution, Disneyland. So I think we're both very excited and delighted about uh, the way the book came came about and and, uh, the way it looks. Oh, absolutely. One of the things about the way it looks is that there are so many photos in the book that have not been seen by the public. So how did you go about researching and obtaining all of these photos for the book? Well, I have to say, this book could not have been done without the cooperation of Alan and the Coates family, because a lot of the pictures that you've never seen before have come from Alan and from his father's archives. And praises for Alan because he has fastidiously uh, you know, uh, compiled and organized uh, all of his father's artwork and paintings and photographs, uh, as well as just like little bits of ephemera. I mean, Alan has uh, had his press pass ticket for the 1959 uh, sort of second opening of Disneyland, uh, which we have in the book, and, and he saved that. You know, which is really amazing because those are those are are things that are kind of throwaways. You know, you use it the day of and that's the end of it. And a lot of people don't save those things. And uh, I have to give a lot of credit to Alan for for doing that. Well, thank you, Dave. I am a Disney pack rat, aren't I? I (laughs) Save so much cool stuff that is in the book that's not been seen before. That's what makes it so special. Yeah. And and the other thing I would say is that, you know, we we went out and really uh, did some detective work and went on the hunt and found a lot of other photographs that we were able to license uh, uh, and and have in the book. And and that's what really makes this, 
you know, again, Michael, anytime I've worked on a book project and you've seen a lot of my books, mm -hmm. I, I really want to give the fans uh, that purchased this, these books, things they've never seen before. Because we all know that there, there's a lot of other things out there where you see the same images over and over and over again. And, and I really want to put a lot of stuff in that's new and fresh and people haven't seen before. But, and you do. And you tell us stories about Claude that, uh, you, know, you know, that I'd never heard before, especially about his early life as a young man. I mean, that his stuff. His life was the stuff that could be a a movie series or a television series, and that he had some colorful and adventurous tales in his early life. I mean, he was a lifeguard, a cowboy, a fireman aboard a steamship. Uh, can you tell our listeners about some of the stories about Claude's early life that they'll find in this book? Well, you know, one of the things I I would say is that some of that was fresh material for me, even though I knew Claude uh, at the very beginning of my career and at the tail end of his career, when, you know, about, I think our, our worlds overlapped by about two years or so when I, when I met Claude. Uh, and I have to say, it's important to tell that story of the early shaping of, uh, uh, of an artist. Uh, because all of those influences will will stay with them for the rest of their lives, and and uh, Alan's grandmother, uh, you know uh, Claude's mother, was an artist in her own right. Uh, she was a ceramicist and a painter, and so Claude grew up in a world of art and art making, and uh, you know, and he pursued that as as a lifelong career. So I think it's really important to sort of in that first chapter to set that foundation and let people, let the readers know where he came from. And I think Alan can expand on that a little further. Well, he was also a world traveler. He loved to travel. And I think that was an impact on his vision of Imagineering and what he was able to create. When he was a young man in the Depression, he decided he wanted to paint in Taos, New Mexico. That was a long, dusty trip to take from, from L.A. when he was going to school at USC. And then he decided the next summer, his, his senior summer, to go all the way to Shanghai, China. And that's when, Michael, he was stoking the boiler on the freighter all the way across the Pacific to Yokohama, and then all the way up to Shanghai and then back again. So he had this spirit of adventure and uh, of, of being receptive to all the input and all of the uh, visions that he, he could see that he later translated, I think, into his artistic visions for uh, the animated films and for Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, he Claude was an accomplished artist before joining the Walt Disney Studio. So what led him in his early life to becoming an artist? Well, he, he had the talent, of course, through his, his mother primarily, and, uh, and he, he went to Chouinard Art Institute and had a lot of training there, as well as fine arts at USC, and he became a member of the California Watercolor Society, and he did quite a bit of exhibiting throughout the state. This would have been in the early mid-30s, and then he... He got a great job at MGM in the art department, in the Hollywood's largest art department, uh, 
being uh, an associate, an assistant to one of the major art directors on a big biopic musical that was being made at MGM, the great Ziegfeld. And so he could have stayed at MGM and been a movie art director and made a lot more money, but he decided, and I don't know why, I never asked him, why did you decide to go work for Mickey Mouse at a fraction of what you were making at MGM? But he he had a vision of something else that he wanted to do. And, and, and we make those decisions at a young age, and that's something he decided to do. I'm going to uh, just interject on that, uh, the fact that uh, as an artist, which I am, uh, it's not always about the money. It, it's, it's about being inspired. It's about projects. It's about, uh, you know, being part of an organization that's doing something different. And so, you know, I think that for Claude, uh, that may have been a driving force for him was, you know, that Walt was Walt was doing something. There was excitement going on over at the Disney Studios uh, uh, on their Hyper I, on the Hyperion Studio lot uh, in the '30s, and and they were building towards doing this feature film. So that was something new, innovative. I think would have been appealing from a creative standpoint. But the other thing I wanted to mention was Claude actually started going to USC for architecture. Mm-hmm. before he switched to fine arts. So he has this architecture background. He's got a fine arts background. So it's perfect for working in an art department that is visualizing and creating dimensional sets for live action movies. Uh, and all of that, all of those experiences will will come into play in the 50s when Walt's, Walt Disney decides to build Disneyland. Uh, because Claude has a, a knowledge of model making, of architecture, of being a fine artist. He knows the Disney films because he's worked on them. So all of that, all of those things come into play and all those experiences become part of uh, who he is and contributes to uh, and why I think Walt picked him to, to start working on some of the attractions at Disneyland. Yeah, and and Claude worked on backgrounds for several Disney films and short subjects, but it was his work on the Old Mill in particular that caught Walt's attention. So what was it about that film that impressed Walt? I I think it's because it was the first time that there was a, uh, a short film that was really a background picture and that Claude was able to captivate an audience by creating this emotional landscape, this mood, uh, this dimensionality uh, within uh, the, the, the picture itself. Uh, and so when the audience first saw the old mill in the theaters, it, it wasn't your typical story. It was the day in the life of this structure, this old mill. And there was no characters that were you know the the protagonist or an antagonist i think you know the storm was the antagonist Mm -hmm. the protagonist was the the mill itself and the inhabitants which were supporting characters the birds and the other animals that were in uh the mill the bats hanging up in the rafters 
and and the wildlife surrounding the mill on the outside. Uh, and they were able to tell us an emotional story uh, uh, really through the backgrounds, through creating these beautiful environments. Absolutely. And, and Alan, your mother and father met during uh, working on Snow White. Did they share with you any stories about how they met and fell in love? Yes, they did. My mother was had started several years before my father. She started in 1931 in ink and paint, and Dad came along in 1935. And she was supervisor during uh, Snow White. And it was her job, for some reason, to deliver exposure sheets all around the studio to every department. And uh, she had told her mother, I'm going to marry a tall, handsome artist. And when she went into the background department, there he was. She gave him an exposure sheet and she went home that night to her mother and said, I met the tall, handsome guy I'm going to marry. So it was, you know, corny, romantic, Disney. Yeah, right. But that's how it started. And their honeymoon during Snow White was so it just so fast because they were working late nights and Saturdays overtime. They had three days. They went to Ensenada, they rushed back and went right back to work again. So <laughs> it was sort of an interesting romantic interlude in the middle of this great film they were both working out. So it's a very interesting story. And they were just a handsome couple, too. Very, yes. they yeah, very, much, look like, very much look like movie stars, really, in a way, from the photos in the post. Especially Claude, because, I mean, he was he was tall, he was handsome, and he was always tan. He always liked to be out, uh, you know, he was the lifeguard at the beach. Uh, he, he uh, when he built his house, he put a pool in. He always liked to be swimming. And Alan, uh, I think you told me some great stories about some of the, the key artists at the studio taking a lunch break over at your father's house, uh, going for a dip in the pool. Yes. Yeah, he'd invite the guys over for a brown bag lunch at the pool because uh, the house was close to the studio. And I got to meet so many great guys and, and women, too, who'd come by And I, when I was a kid. And I later worked for many of these people or with many of these people. So, um, yeah, we had the lunches that Dave mentioned. Uh, and, uh, and during the making of Disneyland, Walt was giving rides around the studio in the stagecoach that, that was – for Frontierland, and and Dad wanted to take a ride, and he walked up to the stagecoach, and Walt was up there on top riding shotgun. He said, "Claude, get back! You'll spoil the scale." <laughs> and he meant it. He said, "You know, just." And he would he he kid Dad about his height, and usually he he it was kidding, but sometimes he I think was sensitive that. Dad would spoil the scale of the park, and he said, "Don't get out of the picture, Claude. I, you know, you're you're making things look too small." I think about the scale. So, well, you know that that stagecoach I think was like three fifths the normal size, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Alan? It five eighths, you know, or three fifths. I'm not quite sure what the scale was, but it was quaint, smaller than yeah. the it was purposely made a little smaller. So, you know, for, for the park and, but you know, the flip side of that story is that, uh, they were driving down, I think to Disneyland, weren't they, Alan? When, when, uh, Walt said, Claude, you sit up front, you're taller than me. I'll sit in the back. 
Yeah. And, he was really nice about that sometimes too. Yeah. He, Dad was going to climb in the back seat of this two two door car, and Walt said, "No, Dad, Claude, you sit in the front. You got the long legs. I'll, I'll climb in the back." And he, he climbed in the back seat. I mean, you know, they were very close. Ultimately, they really had a bond. I think not only through animation, but of course through imagination too. Until Walt was gone, they were quite close, mm-hmm. and that's one example of that. But when did Claude first meet Walt Disney? Well, it's interesting. When he, he first started the studio, Walt was on his grand tour of Europe. So he didn't meet Walt Disney for several weeks until after he started working there. And Walt came into the background department and said, oh, you, who are you? You're, a new, you're, you're the new kid on the block, right? That's sort of, so to speak. So, uh, you know, but he, I mean, that's how he met Walt was when Walt just dropped in after he returned from Europe. And uh, um, Dad was the new kid on the block, and they put him to work doing crummy little jobs like painting every single shingle on the roof of a burning building that no one else in the background department wanted to do that. So Dad had to get the job, and he had to do that. Uh, Detailed, busy work like that that wasn't particularly fun, but uh, that's how you start, and that's what he did. But from the stories that you share about Claude and Walt, it seems like Claude really understood Walt and how Walt thought um, and how Walt would react to things. I mean, Claude seemed to be very intuitive and understood how to work with Walt. Well, that's that's true. Um, he, he, He did understand that. And of course, Walt had the raised eyebrow and the cough and certain reactions to things and you never said no. Um, and if Walt didn't like something, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say, I don't like that. He'd say, well, what, what if we did it this way? You know, and dad would understand that. It's okay. Well, I got to give it another try because he doesn't like that. And he'd come back with, with another version of what they were working on. So, but he knew Walt liked to see dimensional things. Dad worked in dimension. He'd always build a little model first. And Walt liked that. He'd like to come in and see the spatial relationship that Claude was talking about. He didn't want to look at sketches and renderings as much as, as a dimensional object. And then Walt would get it. He'd understand the space that the story had to fill. Right, Dave? Isn't that kind of the the logic of it there yeah i i mean you know while i was writing this you know i i'm thinking about you know what it was like what were they what was the dynamic that was going on but i imagine that walt was looking at some models that uh claude had built a lot of models for uh lady in the tramp because they wanted to see from the dog's point of view what a room would look like and by making a model and being able to get your eyes down towards the bottom of the floor and looking up and see those relationships, the spatial relationship in a model is a lot easier than trying to just do a sketch of it, you know? So the models he was building were being used as inspiration to create those dog, dog eye point of views in uh, Lady and the Tramp. And so I'm imagining, and there's photos of Walt with one of those models and Claude, uh, you know, I'm imagining that that had to have been a bug in, in, in 
you know, the back of Walt's mind. So then when he's starting to develop Disneyland, he asked Claude if he could build a model for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and then paint some little backdrops to go on the walls and stuff. So, so they were going to use that for the art director that was going to be working on that particular attraction uh, for the new park. You know, and, and, and it's it's sort of this slow pull and, you know, the slow roping of the guy into becoming an Imagineer. And, and by the way, consequently, we talk about this in the book. You know, Claude was kind of at the end of it for doing painted backgrounds for animated films. He, he wanted to move on and do other things and have other challenges. And that's very typical. I mean, I can totally relate to that, you know, based on my own career is that, you know, once you're doing something for a number of years and you're mastering it, you want to continue to move and grow and be challenged. So you're moving on to other things and doing different aspects uh, uh, of the work that you love to do. Mm hmm. And I, I believe I, I don't know if I read it in your book or elsewhere where Claude was a master at figuring out like the the layout for attractions where he could fit an just an amazing amount in a small space, which is critical for Disneyland's Fantasyland, where a lot of those attractions don't have a big footprint. No, they don't. And and, and in fact, because of his architectural background and his understanding of spatial relationships, he he could actually lay out a ride better. I think you know most of the most of the old Imagineers would have agreed with this. Uh, he could lay out uh, uh, an attraction better than anyone else because he could really understand that spatial relationship within the space they were working in. Uh, and so when you go on, a, uh, say, an attraction like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, it's not a very big footprint. But, boy, you feel like you're going and traveling for <laughs> miles when you're in that attraction, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Wow. And I think the way he laid it out, it, it gives you that sort of frantic feel of yeah. Toad careening through London town. Yeah, in there. absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about some of his work that he did to support the war effort? Yeah, and I, I, the one thing I would want to say before that is that his older brother, Lee Coates, was a bomber, a pilot. He was, he was a pilot in the U.S. Uh, Army Air Forces because there was no U.S. Air Force yet at that point. The U.S. Air Force was formed after the end of World War II. So he was, he was a bomber pilot that was stationed out in the Philippines and the South Pacific. So we wanted to sort of you know, uh, juxtapose what, what Claude was doing and what his brother did during the war. Because really during World War II, you know, there's a reason why they call it the greatest generation, because it wasn't just the, the guys that went off to fight on the front lines. It was all the men and women that stayed behind and were working in the war industries. And, and, and when World War II broke out, you know, the Walt Disney Studios became a war plant. It was classified as a war plant. They had anti-aircraft batteries stationed on the property. There were military walking around the property, and, and and Walt, you know, and the and the team at the studio did some two hundred training films, propaganda films, uh, war-related cartoons, uh, insignias. Uh, I mean, it's just mind-boggling the amount of stuff they turned out in a short five years to support the war effort. And no, all of those artists 
were right in there working on these films like Victory Through Air Power or some of the shorts that were being shown in theaters for entertainment or even uh, some of the public service announcements for buying war bonds up in Canada or uh, uh, paying your taxes uh, with the new spirit, the Donald Duck cartoon. Uh, and they followed that up with, uh, with a sequel to that, uh, the, uh, the Spirit of 43. Uh, both tax pictures that were commissioned by the U.S. Treasury in encouraging people to pay their taxes to help support the war effort. Uh, so all of these things were hugely important. So it wasn't just about, you know, the, the boys fighting overseas, but it was the men and women behind the lines who were, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all of these people that were working uh, to support all of those efforts on both fronts, you know, the Pacific and in Europe. Uh, so I think it, it was it was hugely important the work that they did, and it's it's rather un, unstate understated, I think, uh, in, in the public's mind, you know, now 75, 80 years later. Right. Plus, the studio and the animators worked on instructional films for our military on how to do to perform tasks that were critical to the war effort their yeah. jobs many of which were you know highly classified yeah you know it's really funny because a lot of the artists that worked on some of that world war ii material they'd have three separate units working on the same picture but no one unit knew what all the pieces were they only knew their piece and they completed it and then it got put together elsewhere and they didn't know what the whole picture was like until after the fact, until after the war was over and that material was declassified. Now, after the war, the Disney animation style changed and Claude was able to adapt to these styles where other artists weren't whilst maintaining the Disney house style of animation. And in your book, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, you explain how Claude's um, previous training was able to influence these post-war Disney animated films. So how, how was, how was Claude able to sort of walk this fine line of, of introducing this new, new look while maintaining the Disney house style? Well, you know something, it's an interesting uh, uh, question because uh when you look at the entire catalog of Disney uh, animated features from Snow White forward, every one of those pictures has its own look. Uh, and, and a lot of that is born out of the research that goes into each picture, uh, as well as external influences of, you know, art movements and things that are going on. Uh, I'll give you a great example of a more current film like Pocahontas, uh, they they referenced J.D. Liondecker, who, who was a well-known illustrator back in the Art Deco, you know, the 1920s, 30s period. Uh, they they referenced his particular style uh, for the look of Pocahontas. It was it was an inspiration for how they designed Pocahontas. So the same thing was going on at the Disney Studios when they were doing Snow White and Pinocchio. They were queuing off of the European book illustration style 
uh, you know, the, the, these beautiful uh, illustrated children's books that, that were coming out of Europe. So that was a great influence. And then you get into like a film like Bambi and Bambi has an Asian influence. And, you know, uh, uh, because of Tyrus Wong, uh, uh, you know, putting putting that forward and and those styles for each of those pictures is going through experimentation and development you know visual development early on in the picture until they're landing on a look so after world war ii you start to get into uh, a more graphic style and and part of that i think has to do with the upa studio starting uh uh where they were going sort of anti-disney uh they wanted to go more flat and less dimensional and more graphic and and so you have a lot of these design elements starting to creep into everyday life advertising advertisements and things you're seeing in the movie theaters and and all of that and so you know you've got somebody like mary blair who's got this very beautiful style uh, and she's doing visual development for Alice in Wonderland and for Cinderella and for Peter Pan. And so I think personally that Cinderella uh, is a pivotal movie because it really changed the, the look of the Disney animated films into that more graphic uh, feel that was indicative of the 1950s. Mm hmm. So, you know, to me, you know, the 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 thing about the Disney artists to me is that they were able to pivot from picture to picture and adapt to different styles. And that was to me, a, a, it's a very important thing to be able to do as somebody working in animation. Uh, you have to be able to adapt and 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 change and be somewhat of an artistic chameleon. Uh, from picture to picture. Yeah, absolutely. And Cod also worked on all on all the original Disneyland Fantasyland attractions, and a couple of them have scary scenes that concern some parents and guests today. Mm -hmm. And and we've seen the reimagining of Snow White as a result of that, the Snow White attraction. Now, but in your book, Cod shares Walt's thoughts about scary scenes. Alan, that's that's you. That I'm pitching that yes. one to you. <laughs> yes, uh, I worked with my father on uh, the Snow White version at the Walt Disney World uh, uh, when that opened in 1971, and kids would come out screaming their heads off, and and parents were getting upset about this and coming to the management and saying, "Hey, this is too scary." So, uh, and it was called Walt. Uh, it was called Snow White's Adventures, and so. Uh, we put a sandwich board out in front that said, there's a scary witch that may upset young children, parents, please be advised, that kind of a disclosure, right? Mm -hmm. And then that wasn't enough. Kids kept coming out and screaming. And it's it's when the, the witch turned around. She was this beautiful woman looking in the mirror. And the kids said, oh, and then the witch would turn around and they'd see this horrible creature. And that just set them off. And then I did the show lighting in the forest when Snow White was running through the forest in the movie. Remember, in the in the attraction, the, the tree branches would reach out and grab at you like like they wanted to clutch you and pull you out of the ride vehicle. That set the kids off again. 
So finally, we changed the name to Snow White's Scary Adventures. And that helped a little bit. But it, it's funny that Snow White would be that terrifying. But it, it was at, at Walt Disney World. And it continued that way at Disneyland as well. But Walt once said to Dad, he, he said, this didn't bother my father. He said, you know, so kids are scared. And, and Walt said, yes. Kids sometimes have to learn the world can be a scary place, you know? And that's the way Walt felt. He, it didn't bother him. Uh, so he didn't sugarcoat things. The world is a scary place, isn't it? We know that. Right. And then, you know, and then they get scared in a safe, in a safe place. Then it becomes thrilling, you know? And it's funny, the scenes in Snow White that you described are my favorite scenes in those original attractions <laughs> too. What was it like working with your father? Not many of us have that opportunity, especially in a creative environment. Well, I worked with him closely, uh, you know, later on uh, at, at Walt Disney World, as I said, and at Epcot and at the studio and so forth. Um, I came in sort of at the end there of uh, Haunted Mansion at Disneyland and working with him was, he was very, uh, mostly very soft-spoken and thoughtful and, and a very kind person. He had a temper, too. I mean, and you had to, you had to be positive, like with Walt. If you didn't say, Claude, that's not going to work. That's a bad idea. Don't ever say that to Claude or to Walt because uh, you have to look at it positive. There's always a, an answer if you think about it. And Dave will say the same thing with his experience in animation Everybody has to work together and there's no bad ideas. You just have to keep working on things until you get it right. And that's what we did. And uh, dad was a great mentor to so many people. He, uh, if someone walked up to his office, he'd say, hey, come on in. Let me show you what I'm working on. He wanted to share with young people how what the process is and how the best way he thought it would be to, to, to make something happen. So he was very open to talking to people, to young people, to working with everybody. So um, I never had a problem with my father and I never saw him have a problem with anybody else. Uh, a young person or Mark Davis or Walt or anybody. And you've heard a lot of stories about that. So, uh, yeah, we tried to debunk that whole yes. uh, myth about uh, Mark and Claude uh, not getting along. I think it's a bunch of baloney. Uh, I think I think it's it's gotten out of hand because it's a telephone game. One person telling another person a story and that story just continually getting, you know, more fantastic more crazy uh but the reality is is that when you get hundreds of artists working together uh you are going to have differences of opinions uh but ultimately it's what the collective decides or what the boss decides is going to be and everybody gets behind that mm -hmm. uh you know uh claude and and mark uh had a friendship they they socialized after hours uh you know mark and alice davis and uh claude and evelyn coates uh got together at each other's homes for dinners and uh you know uh and socialized so you know and traveled together uh you know there's a great picture of 
uh, of Claude uh, at the iconic uh, TWA uh, terminal at uh, what was then called Idlewild Airport and turned into JFK Airport in New York uh, during the, the time they were working on the World's Fair. Uh, that photo was taken by Mark Davis. You know, so they, they were friends. And, and Alan recounted a lot of stories about uh, the fact that they were friends. So it was important to us to really kind of put that whole thing to rest uh, in print. Yeah, and you did a good job of that. Because I think that I first heard that story when it was, you know, the story surrounding the haunted mansion, where, you know, all the Imagineers had different ideas for the mansion. Right. And they worked together on that. Cause, and they worked great together on Pirates of the Caribbean. And so Walt put them together on the mansion. They had their different ideas, but in the end, they incorporated both their ideas into the mansion, their their and their points of view on it, and it works beautifully uh-huh. yeah. together. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Claude also worked on some concepts for Disneyland that were never built, at least in their original concept, like um Candy Mountain and Science Land, which I'd never heard of before until I read your book, and Liberty Street and Edison Square. Yeah. Yeah. I mean there there was a lot, you know, again, this is this is part of the process of, of developing anything, whether it's in you know, animated films or or theme park attractions. You go through a lot of different ideas. Uh, and, and that's what they were doing. Uh, I, I particularly got a good laugh at the one uh, that was the uranium hunt, uh, where <laughs> they were going to have people, uh, you take a Geiger counter and go out into a field and find uh, a radioactive rock, you know, a low radioactive rock. I, I thought that was just hysterical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but when you think back to the 1950s, it was the, it was the atomic age. You know, they were they were visualizing going into space and the Russians sent up Sputnik as the first satellite. And, you know, all of these things were going on and and nuclear the the nuclear age after the end of World War Two, you know, after the U.S. had dropped the two atomic bombs on Japan. Uh, You know, it was all about, uh, uh, you know, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons and, you know, science and you know space travel and all this stuff so it's it only seemed natural to be spitballing those kinds of ideas oh absolutely yeah now one of my favorite extinct disneyland attractions is frontiers frontierland's mind trains in nature's wonderland and claude was instrumental in creating the stunning rainbow caverns finale and guests um, who see the homage to it when they ride Big Thunder Mountain Railway may not know that this scene presented some challenges for the Imagineers. And Claude was instrumental in resolving the issue um, mm-hmm. that they had. Can you talk to that? I, I think that's a really terrific story. And, uh, you know, and, and what's amazing about that story is one of the most iconic uh, quotes from Walt isn't it fun to do the impossible? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that quote came, w- was, was said directly to Claude in the midst of uh, trying to figure out how to keep the, uh, uh, the water, the, 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 the different colored uh, day glow, if you will, the black light water, those colors separated without them spilling together and, turning into mud 
because when you when you take a bunch of primary colors and throw them together, eventually you just get a, 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 a muddy color. I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, uh, when he started working on that that issue, there was a there was an actual rocket scientist named Hans Haber uh, who was at the studio consulting on some of the man in space projects that they were doing. And Hans Haber saw what Claude was working on. Because you got to remember, the Imagineers were at the studio in those early years when, when they were first developing uh, Disneyland. They hadn't moved to the, uh, the Imagineering campus in Glendale until, I think it was the, what, the early 60s, Alan? 1960, yeah. Mm-hmm. 60, yeah. So, so Hans Haber sees what Claude's doing and says, Claude, that's statistically impossible to do. I'd try and do a German accent, but it would be terrible. But he, you know, in his German accent, said, Claude, that's statistically impossible. You won't be able to solve that because as the water comes down and splashes, it's eventually going to mix together. And you, you, you know, within an hour, you'll have a, a, a muddy color. You just can't, it will never be able to do it. And Claude sees Walt in the hallway and says, hey, you know, Hans Haber said that this is statistically impossible to do. And and all Walt did was smile and look at him and say, well, Claude, isn't it fun to do the impossible? And that was it. It was sort of like, go figure it out. And he did figure it out. He, he figured it out by using uh, a, ho- a rubberized hog hair baffles that are sort of like the scrubby sponges, you know, the scotch, uh, the green scotch uh, mm-hmm. pads. It's sort of like that. He used those as baffles that were camouflaged uh, at the base of the waterfall. And so the water never splashed into, you know, contaminating each color and was able to keep separate. That's amazing. And something so simple. And he was able to figure it out. Absolutely. And, And again, I think one of the key things about working at the Disney company especially in those early years and even when I started working there is you get conditioned to think in terms of not you can't do something but how can you do something you know so so you 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 you're literally conditioned as an artist not to say oh that's impossible i can't do that it, it it's a how do we figure out how to do that? How can we make that work? And I had many of those experiences throughout my career. And I know early on, certainly for Claude and many of the other artists that, that eventually formed Imagineering, uh, they, had, they had those similar kinds of experiences where they had to figure out how to make something work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, now, 1959 was dubbed Disneyland's second grand opening with the debut of Monorail the Matterhorn bobsleds, and submarine voyage. And Claude played a significant role in this expansion of the park. Because this also was, with these attractions, Disneyland actually started to make money on its own, whereas before it was you know, supported by the studio. Alan was there. Yes, I was there. I was there before that grand opening, the second grand opening. I was there at the first grand opening, but... I was there when the submarine voyage was was being uh, constructed and when the Matterhorn Mountain was just a steel structure. And that was a great ride to take when it was open. You could see everything. And uh, and they said, uh, do you want to take a ride on this? You're going to get wet at the end. And I said, sure. 
and uh, it was all open, and it was an incredible uh, trip down into that lake at the bottom, and I got drenched because they were trying <laughs> to figure out the right angle, right? And uh, they finally did, but I got wet. And I also got wet in the submarine ride, uh, which is another story. When uh, uh, at the grand opening, um, I got the last seat at the bottom of the stairwell that goes into the sub, and they didn't close the hatch above me tight enough. And when you go through the waterfall into the show building, after you've been through this beautiful lagoon, you hear the water rumbling, and it came right down on top of me. Didn't touch the <laughs> next to me. It came straight down on my head, and I was wet all the way through the ride, and I knew I was going to get it again on the way out, and I heard the rumbling of the waterfalls, and it comes right down on me again. So that was a, a, a wet experience to, to ride the opening of the submarine voyage and come out so wet. I think a few people decided they were going to get out of line when they saw me come out of that sub because they wondered how safe this was going to be. It was, it was fine. And they took me to wardrobe and they gave me uh, some uh, dry clothes. And it was, it was a, quite an experience. But um, that's an example before that happened, when I could see Claude working, really creating something from the ground up, making that lagoon and the and the and the scenes of the uh, submarine voyage come to life. Um, that was uh, that was really a cool experience for a, a teenage kid. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. And another project that I learned from reading your book that I was unaware of was that. You know, Claude, Al Dempster, and Jack Cutting were part of an Air Force project where they were able to go to Japan and they and they created artwork for um, the Air Force. Can you tell uh, our listeners about this project? Well, and it, how did they get it, it actually wasn't a Disney project. Mm -hmm. it, it was because it was because the Air Force was working with the California Society of Illustrators. Uh, to get artists to participate in what's known as the U.S. Air Force Art Collection. Uh, so the United States Air Force has this huge collection of original paintings that are were done at their facilities all around the world. Uh, and so a number of Disney artists participated, and uh, and, and Claude and Al Dempster were lucky enough to go to Japan. There was uh, another artist, Art Riley, uh, who went to Palmdale uh, to to <laughs> paint the Edwards Air Force Base. You know, and uh, and I I kind of I kind of say you know that Art drew the the short straw because he didn't get a chance to to go on a great adventure overseas. Uh, but while while they were in Japan, they actually visited Dreamland. Uh, mm -hmm. the Nara Dreamland Park, which originally Walt was going to license, uh, you know, in, in the late 50s. And uh, when, when when the guy got the park built and they were sitting down with Walt to decide on what the payments were going to be, the guy decided he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to pay those kinds of royalties to Disney. And the deal was off. But the park still opened and it had, you know, a big red rocket in Tomorrowland and it was a hub with different lands off of it. And it had a main street. It was a lot of similarities to Disneyland. 
Oh know? yeah, it had a castle and a, yeah, a sort a of a Matterhorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and so uh, uh, you know Claude and and uh, Jack Cutting and Al Dempster and Jack Cutting was actually working over in Tokyo uh, for the company in distribution, I believe, uh, and happened to be there. So the three of them did this tour of dreamland. Uh, and then, you know, we talk a little bit about the artwork and we show the three paintings that, that, uh, Claude ultimately did, uh, for the air force and donated to the air force art collection. And, uh, and then a couple of paintings that he did when he got home, uh, that, you know, he was inspired by, uh, by the landscape and some of the places he, he went to, to visit while he was in Japan. And I think it, it, uh, reconnected his, um, uh, it reconnected him to, uh, uh what he loved about the Orient. Mm -hmm. And you, you have, you've recreated the, those paintings in the book and they're, they're just beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful images. And of course, on Connecting with Walt, we've discussed many times the significance of the 1963-64 New York World's Fair to the advancement of audio animatronics and development of Disneyland theme parks, expansion of Disneyland. Something I learned in reading your book and about Claude's contributions to all these attractions, I didn't know the idea of the rotating theater for the Carousel of Progress was Claude's idea. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, it's a great example of uh, of ideas not going to waste because he developed that. Alan, you you tell the story because he he developed it for uh, 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 for Science Land, wasn't it? He developed that rotating theater where the theater moves around a stationary stage, and it was on railroad tracks. It was a huge, big, moving, circular mechanism. And it was built for Science Land, which was going to be another land next to Tomorrowland that Walt wanted to build. But it, that never came about. And so it was put away. And then when they were working on the World's Fair, we have a quote in the book. Bob Gurr said, let's get that old Claude Coates revolving theater out and give that a try for the General Electric show, Carousel of Progress. So... They got the plans out and the sketches and the model that dad had done. And they said, hey, this is going to work for this attraction. So it's a perfect example of something being reused for the benefit of a new idea. And I didn't know that dad created the revolving theater. I, I, I don't know how I found that out, Dave. Did you oh, tell no. We found that out when we interviewed Bob Gurr. Okay. Yeah, Bob because... Bob Gurr told us that whole story. So there you go. I mean, and, and it just worked. And now that's in, in Tokyo. It's still there, um, spinning around, telling the story of electricity. And uh, worked, And GE loved it. It just worked out perfectly for the World's Fair. Yeah. Oh, it's we miss it at Disneyland. It's, it's yeah. uh, We yeah. have to always ride it when we go to the Magic Kingdom. So. But, yeah, there's some great stories about in the book about um, Claude's work on the, the World's Fair, about bringing the dinosaurs to life. We get some glimpses into Walt's personality in here, in that yeah. there's a couple of great stories. One time when Claude saw Walt madder than he'd ever seen Walt before, 
<laughs> so so there's some terrific stories in here that that you'll want to um, get. There's another interesting story when we're talking about the dinosaurs. When you know, in episode 112, we talked about Claude's work on creating the Grand Canyon diorama for Disney, the Disneyland Railroad. And after the fair, Claude he was given the project of expanding the diorama to incorporate the dinosaurs from Ford's Magic Skyway. You tell a really cute story in the book about Claude and Walt's discussion about how to represent the swamp water in this scene. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that, that's a terrific story. Yeah, yeah well, I, I don't if you want to share it. it it's, I thought it was funny. Alan, Alan you share it. Yeah, well, well, Dad, again, was building the model for the swamp where the brontosaurus, apatosaurus is now. We're going to be uh, living in the, and the, this was in the Ford Magic Skyway show. And uh, Walt looked down at, at the swamp that they were sitting in, these big dinosaurs. He said, what, what's going to be, uh, what are they in? And, and Dad said, well, that's going to be real water. And Walt said, hell, Claude, you can't use water. Water will get dirty and the fungus will grow in it. You can't do that. And, and Dad said, okay, then we'll just make it plexiglass and we'll make it, we'll just make it plastic and we'll paint it and make it look like water. So, you know, a while later, Walt comes by and he sees the model again and he looks down at the, at the surface that the dinosaurs are sitting in. He says, well, what is this? And, and, Dad says, well, it's plexiglass it, it, instead of water. And Walt says, well, why can't we use real water? <laughs> <laughs> and Dad says, well, do you think that would work, Walt? We could, could we use real water? And Walt said, well, sure we can. Make it real water, Claude. And so he says, sure, Walt, we will. So <laughs> that's, a, that's an instant, instant where, you know, you don't know whether Walt was – was was playing, you know, was kidding with Dad, or we actually forgot he had said that, or was trying to cover a mistake he made. Uh, it was an interesting story. Those are the stories in the book that haven't been told before, and that's what we've come up with, and I think what makes the book so special. Yeah. Uh, the book is special. I mean, you talk about Pirates of the Caribbean, where, you know, Claude was put in charge of that which really shows the, how much Walt trusted Claude to carry out his vision for that attraction. Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 then he worked, and then he's doing that, and he's also the show designer for Monsanto's Adventure Through um, Inner Space, which well, those of us who wrote that just have such fond memories, you know, of that attraction as well. So there's something that that folks, when you get the book. Great stories about that in there as well. Throughout your book, as you share the stories of Claude and his work, it's clear he was respected by everyone that he worked for, not only for his talent, but for his teamwork, his mentorship, his positive attitude and inquisitiveness. As you wrote the book, did you learn anything new about Claude or anything that surprised you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was tons of stuff. You know, when you start to drill into, uh, you know, a time frame for an artist, uh, there's a lot of things that start to bubble up to the surface that, that most people don't know. 
and you know these are things that we were able to glean out of uh, interviews that Claude had done over the years, and there weren't that many of those, but you know we were able to do that. Postcards uh, Claude sent home, uh, other documents and letters and things like that that uh, you know Alan has so carefully cataloged and cared for. Uh, so, so there was always lots of surprises and I have to tell you, like, you know, the trip to, uh, the trip to Japan for the air force was something most people didn't know about when, you know, we had the uh, manuscript, uh, vetted by a number of Imagineers who knew Claude, uh, and it, it's always gratifying when you write something, uh, and. Uh, people come back and say, wow, I learned something new. I had no idea, you know, uh, and, and we got a number of comments like that from some of the folks uh, that read the manuscript. But, you know, again, you know, writing is a process. And so, you know, we, we probably went through nine or 10 or 11 drafts of the manuscript. And, uh, you know, and after, after I went through the first five or six drafts, uh, you know, I sent them out to people like Tony Baxter, who was mentored by Claude Coates and wrote a beautiful uh, forward mm -hmm. to the book. And, and Peggy Ferris, who was creative executive at Imagineering, and Tom Tom Morris, another Imagineer, and Chris Merritt, uh, who wrote the Mark Davis book. And, you know, we, we sent it out to a, a bunch of people uh, to scrub over it for us because the one thing we wanted to make sure always is that you're as accurate as you can possibly be. And, you know, there, there's some 360 or 70 uh, footnotes in the book, uh, you know, on where material was found and, you know, where it was referenced from and things like that. Uh, so, you know, it was a very, very thorough uh, uh, process to, to sort of cover this first 15 years of Claude uh, working with Walt Disney at Disneyland, on Disneyland, and and that was the question that I had. Your story of Claude ends with his work on the Haunted Mansion, and then it briefly mentions that his career extended another twenty years as he worked on the Magic Kingdom, Epcot Center, Tokyo Disneyland, and Euro Disneyland, which is now Disneyland Paris. So, can we look forward to a part two, another book on this part of Claude's career? It's quite possible. I mean, honestly, when when Alan and I first started talking about doing this book, uh, you know, you have to say, where do you start? Uh, you know, we skate through his first 20 years at the studio in that opening chapter. But you could write an entire book just on his animation work at the Disney Studios. Uh, and then you got this book, which we've completed, which is the first 15 years and I think Tom Morris said it's the golden age of Disneyland. You know, mm -hmm. it's where those iconic attractions were put into place at the at the original park. Uh, and then you could do a third volume, which is all his work on Walt Disney World, translating a lot of the work, a lot of the attractions he did at Disneyland to Walt Disney World, uh, creating new attractions down there, Epcot. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Paris Disneyland, the work he did over there. Uh, and then uh, at the very end of his career, his 54-year career with the company, uh, he, he, his final attraction is for uh, the castle at uh, Tokyo Disneyland. 
so, I mean, it's an amazing career, and it does deserve to have more work done on it. But you couldn't put all of that. It, it would be an injustice to try and condense that all of that work into one volume. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't be wouldn't be right and alan and i both felt that way and and that's why we focused in on the first 15 years of disneyland because again there's there's a big audience for the park and and the the real fans already know who claude Coates is you know uh and and the the other fans out there need to know who claude Coates is right absolutely and at the end of the book, you share images of some of Claude's watercolor paintings, which are old in their color, style, design. I mean, they're they're beautiful. Is his artwork ever on display to the public? Are prints made available for sale? Anything like that? Uh, yes, uh, prints are for sale. If, if you want to go to ClaudeCoats.com, the, uh, his website, uh, the Giclée prints of his art are available certain certain samples are available for purchase so that is it is possible but that art gallery section at the end of the book isn't just the watercolors michael it's the gouache uh it's the what he called opaque watercolor that he helped develop during the making of pinocchio and it also is quite a bit of our acrylic work that he painted later in his career. Most of his world travels were painted in acrylic. And he also did collage. He worked in so many different medium that uh, he was very uh, uh, very flexible in the, what he did. And that shows in that art gallery section at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I think it's also important to point out, it's a beautiful arc of about 50 years of his personal work. Uh, because you have those early watercolors from Taos, New Mexico, in uh, in the nineteen you know thirties, nineteen thirty three thirty four period, and you have this wonderful artistic arc that you can see because we put them in chronological order into the gallery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it was a surprising and delightful end to the book. It was so unexpected. Uh, to have that, and it, it, it was—it's it, wonderful. They're just beautiful to look at. What What do you hope readers of Claude Coates' Walt Disney's Imagineer: The Making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and Beyond? What do you hope they'll come away with after reading this book? I, I want I want people to know, uh, uh, you know, who Claude Coates was as a human being and as an artist, and also his uh his major influ- influence and impact on the development of Disneyland with Walt Disney. I mean some of the most iconic attractions like Pirates and Haunted Mansion and you know Submarine Ride none of those things would be what they are uh had he not been part of that. It would have mm-hmm. you know if he wasn't involved it would have been something different. Absolutely. Alan, what do you hope people come away with knowing you after reading this book? What do you hope they learn about your father? Well, beyond just the story of my father, it's not specifically a biography of my father. It's about the creative process. And anyone who's interested in art or design and architecture and technology and all the things that, that Walt and my father were involved in, that's in the book. So if anyone wants to be really involved in doing this in their life, career or 
knowing about what happened, this book tells us about that. It tells us about all these different things that my father did with Walt, uh, shoulder to shoulder. It's very personal, and it, it covers many different things that, uh, that uh, I think are very important, and we did a great job in telling uh, that story. It also emphasizes the team effort, the team yes. nature of this type of work. Because, yes. because Claude always felt that he was part of a team. Uh, he was never, you know, uh, a gregarious individual who was out there, you know, uh, talking himself up all the time, uh, as there, as we know, some have. Uh, he, Claude was a team player. It was important for him to be part of a team. And when you look and read through this book, you'll get that sense that, you know, here was a guy who was part of a team oftentimes leading the team uh, as a show designer, uh, but nevertheless part of a team that was inventing a new type of entertainment, immersive theme park attractions. They pioneered all of this stuff. And when I say they, not just Claude and Walt, it was Mark Davis and, you know, Yale Gracie and Bob Gurr and all of those early Imagineers who came together uh, to make Walt Disney's vision come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I, you know, Craig and I often get questions from listeners for suggestions about books to read on Walt Disney, on Disney history and the, the creation of the theme parks and, and the, you know, imagineering, the creative process. And this book, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, the Making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and Beyond. It's a must for anyone interested in those topics. Um, the stories are so fascinating. I have to tell you, I read half the book in my first sitting because I, I just couldn't put it down because, the, the well, Dave, your prose is always compelling. And, right. But the story just draws you in um, from, from just that he was a cowboy and, and all this. Um, I also find myself just thumbing through the book you know, at times, just looking at the photographs and the artwork. And with the holiday season coming, this would be a wonderful gift for any Disney fan, just because, again, Dave, you you know how to make a book. I right. mean, it's just beautiful with the... Um, the pages and the artwork. And I mean, you really feel like you have something special in your hands with all of your books. It's three and um, a half pounds of magic. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so how can our listeners get a copy of Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer? Well, if, if people want, would like a, a copy signed by myself and Alan Coates, they can go to the oldmillpress.com and they can pre-order the books are expected to start shipping out to people the beginning of October, the first or second week of October. Uh, but the book does not officially release until November 16th. If you have an independent bookstore in your neighborhood, go to the bookstore. They will be able to order the book in for you. Uh, and I really would encourage people to try and support their local independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, certainly go online, you know, uh, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, all are going to be carrying the book. Great. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to what you're working on next. Um, is there anything you can you give us any hints what your next project is? 
Not yet. Not yet, Michael. Okay. But you know what? When I'm ready to talk about it, you guys are going to be some of the first people I reach out to. You know that. Excellent. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll look I, forward I, I to have, it. I have a whole bunch of uh, uh, projects in the pipeline. I'm going to be putting out books almost on a yearly basis through 2026 right now. So, and, 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 and as you well know, I always pick topics that haven't been covered before things that, you know, people might not be aware of. And, uh, I, I like, I like drilling into stuff that, uh, really hasn't had any kind of uh, spotlight put on it. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them so special. So, and, um, well, I want to thank, Dave and Alan, thank you so much for joining us once again on Connecting with Walt to share stories about Walt Disney's Imagineer Claude Coates and the impact that he had on all of us. Dave, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to add one more thing. I just want to remind everybody, theoldmillpress.com, if you want to get a signed copy of the book and you can see some of the other books that are available uh, on Disney through them. Uh, And then Alan Coates uh, mentioned earlier, ClaudeCoats.com to see uh, some of the artwork and the G clays that are available. And I also wanted to mention my website, DavidBossard.com, and there's a bunch of free stuff. If somebody uh, uh, you know gets the book for for a gift at the holidays and they want to get it signed, uh, they can uh, write to me through my website uh, for a book plate, signed book plate. So there's a oh, that's great. Yeah, and there's a, there's a bunch of articles on the website about uh, different aspects of animation and Disney that people might be interested in. So you got three different websites to go to and see some fabulous stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Craig will have links to all of those in our show notes as well. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, this was wonderful sharing all these stories about Claude. And again, I want to encourage our listeners to get this book and add it to your collection. You won't be sorry. You are going to enjoy reading this book. And, and, you know, I just want to say thank you to your listeners, because I know many of your listeners did do the pre-order of the book. To And, and it's because of that outpouring of people who really supported the project that we have this book. So thank you to everybody out there in uh, podcast land. <laughs> our, con- our Connecting with Walt family is very supportive and, and enthusiastic to learn about Disney history and about Walt and the people that worked with Walt. Much appreciated. Yes. Well, well we appreciate you, both of you, for your time and for sharing uh, Claude's story with us. Thank you so much. And now it's time for me to ask Craig about This Week in Disney History. All right. Well, we are in the week of September 25th. So the end of the month here. So... According to a September 25th, 1946 report in The Hollywood Reporter, many recording artists, such as Dinah Shore, the Mary Max, Woody Herman, and the Modernaires, have already released their versions of music from a Walt Disney film before its November premiere. What is the title of this film? What was the year again? 1946. 
1946. And can you name a, a couple of those artists again? Uh, Dinah Shore, the Mary Max, Woody Herman, and the Modern Airs. And probably a lot of people have to Google all these folks. That would also be <laughs> because I don't recognize <laughs> a single one of them. Um, I'm I'm just going to take guess based off of the year, though, and say Song of the South. That is correct. Very good. Mm-hmm. Okay, September 26th. Kraft ended its sponsorship of Epcot's The Land Pavilion on September 26th, 1993. Who took over sponsorship the following day? Oh, my gosh. Um, I should know this, but I don't. Nestle. I that wasn't even one of the guesses I would have had. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, September 27th. What Disney's Hollywood Studio opening day attraction when it was the Disney MGM Studio closed on September 27th, 2014? 2014. Okay. So, I was around at this time right around September though. I think I'm going to go with the Backlot Tour. That's correct. Open since the park's debut on May 1st, 1989. It was a combination of a walking and tram tour of the Backlot area. The first incarnation of the Backlot Tour loaded at the former entrance to the Magic of Disney Animation. The original tour was far longer and more elaborate than the final version. I liked it. The only problem was is that in the beginning when we went on it, there really were no films yeah. that had been filmed there. I think Splash 2 was um, like the only one. <laughs> that was a stretch. Yeah. So. It, it, it's, it's time did come and go. And it could have been yeah. a lot more if they would have invested more in it. But, of course, they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. September 28th. The surround sound system to be used in theaters for Fantasia was first tested on September 28th, 1938. What name was given to this sound system? Uh, That would be Fantasound. That's absolutely correct. And Fantasound will lead to the development of the 5.1 surround format. Okay, September 29th at Epcot. What was dedicated on September 29th, 1999 that signaled the start of the Millennium Celebration? I'm guessing the the wand. Yeah, the Mickey Mouse <sighs> arm holding a wand is dedicated with 2,000 over Spaceship Earth. And who would have thought it would have lasted as long as it did? Yeah, I, I will be honest. I enjoyed it when it had 2,000 because it felt like it was... Uh, yeah, a limited time thing because it wasn't mm-hmm. going to run forever. So then when it did switch to Epcot, I even I was like, eh, eh this is not really necessary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it had been a year, I would have been okay with it. But um, yeah, when they they got their mileage out of that. Yeah. I will say uh, I prefer that because I, I prefer that to the hat because at least it wasn't necessarily messing with spaceship earth like it wasn't blocking the view of it or anything it Mm -hmm. just it had bad headwear on top of it unlike the hat which just was a nuisance i didn't realize really how i'd forgotten how large the plaza is in front of the chinese theater 
at the yeah. Disney Hollywood Studios without the hat. It's massive. There. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Okay, September 30th. One of Walt's nine old men retired from Walt Disney Productions on September 30th, 1975. An employee since February 1927, his large body of work includes Steamboat Willie, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Alice in Wonderland, and Lady and the Champ. He is the only one of the nine old men whose careers spanned the silent movie era to the age of television. Who is he? I mean, I know I only have nine to choose from, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to let you give me on this one. It's Les Clark. Okay, okay. Just a teenager when he started. So Good career. Okay, October October 1st, he did have a good career. Architect John V. Cowles passed at the age of 83 at his Burbank, California home on October 1st, 2001. His friendship with Walt Disney extended back to the 1920s in Kansas City when Walt lived with the Cowles family and worked for, um, and, and Cowles worked for, um, Disney on different projects. Amongst them were various buildings Cowles designed for Disneyland and two sound stages on the Burbank lot. When Walt and his wife Lillian built their home in Holmby Hills, what structure did Walt Disney hire John Cowles to design? I have no idea. Walt Disney wanted a train barn for his miniature train, the Lily Bell, and he hired Cowles to design it. And you can now visit Walt Disney's barn in Griffith Park, California. I feel like I should have known that one. but I don't think I knew that until I came across this little tidbit yeah. of information. The name just wasn't sticking. Cows. I yeah. feel like that was yeah. the first time I've ever heard it. But I'm, I'm sure I've heard it before at some point. We've talked about the barn so much. Been to the barn. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, though, if I knew... Um, who made it? If I I knew who designed it, because I always heard you know Walt based it on the you know the the barn it was in his Marceline Missouri home. Yeah. So I never it never occurred to me somebody designed it. Oh, we got to get to the bottom so. of this, Michael. <laughs> so anyway, well, you did well this week. All right. Well, that I enjoyed hearing those stories of Claude. Uh, this week and uh, we have to have Alan on the show because just to talk about his career because he's done so much as well yep. in his time as an Imagineer. And I was uh, chatting with him before we got you connected and, and Dave connected on the call and uh, truly from from uh, Alan's mother to father uh, to him and I believe he said one sibling as well too all involved in the Disney company uh, they there there should be a whole book on their whole family uh, it's it's really ingrained in their culture so yeah and what an impact they've had yeah you know on the films and the theme parks and all that I mean an amazing family so yeah we'll have to um we'll have to look at our schedule and pencil them in. I, I agree. You know, some families yeah. just get it, and uh, they're one. They they got it. <laughs> they got lots and, of it. <laughs> and and for one family to have so much talent, yeah, yeah, it's amazing too that everybody in the family ha- has a talent that they contributed to. 
you know, Walt Disney and his legacy. Yeah. That's amazing. I, uh, yeah. No, it, it was, that's, I, I wish sometimes we record like the, the pre-intros and stuff. I mean, it's completely unusable, but, uh, you know, he was, he was even mentioning how, you know, how just incredible it is even thinking back to, to the fact that he truly did have Uncle Walt around him as he was growing Mm -hmm. up. And so it wasn't even just the same. It was actually a reality for him. And that's just, it's so, so cool to think about. It is. It is just amazing. It just fascinating, fascinating to listen to him. Yeah. So, so Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Oh, uh, as always, you can find me on all the different shows I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. You can email me anytime you want, Craig at WDWinfo.com. You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 